Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining podcasts. Do you like to listen? Hello, this is Sam Fredrickson. And Jason Moitoso. From the Not Alone Podcast. And you're listening to History Goes Bump. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 209th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. On today's episode, we are bringing you a location that was suggested to us by Bob Sherfield, and that is Tilty Abbey over there in the UK. We're looking forward to bringing that to you. Denise, we just got back from the Haunted America conference. What'd you think? It was really great. It was so much fun to listen to all the speakers, be able to network and meet a lot of the people. And of course, my favorite, hanging out with members from the Spooktacular crew. So we got to see again Heather, Tammy and her husband Brian, Cindy and her son Gavin, Felicia and her husband Coy, Josh. And then we got to meet for the first time Rose and her two daughters, Debbie and Lori, who are sisters. And we also got to meet Taylor. Yes. And so it was really great to meet all of you. So thank you so much to you guys for making the effort to come out to the conference and hang out with us. It was neat. We had people who came from so many different states and we had the largest meetup we've ever had at the Lent Mansion. There were 16 of us there. Yep. So history goes bump history. Definitely. We got uh, two more ghost tours under our belt there. We did the one in Alton and we also went up to Springfield and did the Lincoln Ghost Walk. We got to check out some of Lincoln's hotspots there. While we were at the conference, we made a lot of videos that we're going to share with the executive producers. And we also had some interviews. We shared some of our insights and things that we did. And we also captured some EVPs, all of which we put into a bonus cast, which we put up a couple of days ago for the executive producers. One of them was so chilling and is so clear that we felt like we should share it with all of the listeners. And I'll set this up by letting everybody know on the Alton Walking Tour, which was created by Troy Taylor, and it was hosted by Luke Nalaborski. Part of it, you go inside of this tunnel that is underneath this really old apartment building and the story behind it is that it used to house slaves as a part of the Underground Railroad. So those are the kind of emotions that you have going on here. There's lots of tales of hauntings there. There's a cute story about a little child ghost holding hands and then there's also chilling stories about a dark, some kind of figure that has been so scary that a girl who was helping out with the tour at one time was so terrified by actually seeing this figure stepping between her 
her and the group that she screamed for Luke to turn on the lights and she would no longer come on the night tours with him anymore as a helper. Well, when we were doing the tour, I clicked on the little recorder that I carry with me to see if we would pick up anything. And uh, on our way out, Denise mentioned that she heard some chattering from three guys who were playing the quote unquote caboose of our tour, which means they were helping Luke to make sure that the group stayed together because there was about, I don't know, 40 to 50 of us on the tour. And she said, it sounds to me like they experienced something and they're going to tell us about it later. Well, they never got around to telling us about it. After I listened to the recording that I made down in the tunnel, I asked Luke if he would tell me what had happened because I caught something, I think, and then we're going to play it for you guys. And I wanted to know what kind of story, what they had experienced, because I wondered if they kind of went together. So Luke said, the three of them were standing outside the tunnel. Adam had his back against the wall to the left of the door. Steve was standing more in the center of the room and Jake was standing to Adam's right. Adam noticed Steve left the room and walked through the doorway into the other little room and then he turned to head towards the stairs. Adam made mention to Jake about wondering where Steve was going. Just then Steve said, I'm right here. He was still standing in the room. So who did Adam see? Adam did comment that in all his years of doing this, this really shook him up. Now, I'm going to go ahead and play for you the EVP that I caught. I'm going to play you the original so that you know I haven't tampered with it. I have not amplified it in any way. It is low, so you're going to need to put on your earbuds and you're going to need to crank up your sound. I will play it three times in a row. Then I will come back and whisper to you to turn down your headphones so that we don't kill your ears. And uh, we do know that there is a child. There's been a lot of people who have encountered it. Uh, sometimes it's by that little shirt tug trying to get your attention, but other times he'll actually hold people. And uh, we do know that there is a child, there's been a lot of people who have encountered it. Uh, sometimes it's by that little shirt tug trying to get your attention, but other times he'll actually hold people. And uh, we do know that there is a child, there's been a lot of people who have encountered it. Uh, sometimes it's by that little shirt tug trying to get your attention, but other times he'll actually hold people. Turn down your headphones at this time so we don't kill your ears. So I didn't want to tell you what we think we caught in the EVP before you listen to it because I didn't want to bias your hearing. What we all think we've heard is a growl. And uh, I very, very chilling. I about fell out of my chair when I heard it. So never have we caught anything like that. And uh, so I'm not sure what made it. I don't know if whatever it was was what these guys ended up seeing. And just so people know, I was about five people in from the doorway. So I was kind of near the guys who were playing caboose and I was surrounded by women. I don't know. Did you guys hear it too? That was just one of three that I captured. I still have some more audio to go through. So we might have some more coming in the future. I can't believe that we got three hits right there. One of them also came when I was talking to Dana Matthews of the Traveling Museum of the Paranormal and the Occult. I think one of the haunted objects was trying to communicate with us in some way. So I uh, hope you executive producers enjoyed that. We have lots of great stuff coming for you guys over there at the $5 and above level, including more shows like what we're doing here. We have locations that wouldn't take up a full episode. So we're going to start doing those over on the private feed as well. So our goal is to bring you guys lots of great content over there. So thanks so much for your support. Next year, it's going to be in Alton, Illinois again, and the dates are June 22nd and 23rd. So we'd love to have a whole bunch more of you meet up with us. It's the middle of the country, so it's pretty central for everybody to get to. 
maybe be making plans to do that. Yes, yeah, so and make plans to come in early because we're thinking about doing possibly a ghost tour that's not associated with the conference on Thursday night and then another meetup on Friday or as what happened this year, it was like a whole day of spooktaculars running all over the place all day Friday. And so we do plan on doing the early arrival again, the conference Friday night and Saturday and then Sunday's kind of up in the air. I know that I'm going to have to leave early and so we don't know if Diane's going to leave early or if she's going to hang out. If people are all hanging out, I'll probably stick around. But if everybody's leaving on Sunday, then I'll leave on Sunday too. We want to give a special thank you to our listener, Christina. We got your package today, which featured a pillow that was made by a creator over on Etsy. She takes t-shirts and turns them into throw pillows. And this one features that drawing that Matthew Herons made of us in the Haunted Mansion. So thank you so much for that. We absolutely love it. And it is sitting here on the couch in the studio now. And our other listener, Joe, sent us some coasters that he made out of River Rock, and they have our logo on them. And they're just charming. We love them. So we've got pictures of those up on Instagram if people want to see them. We also wanted to thank the fabulous ladies who brought us gifts on this trip. We got from Heather, I got the Encyclopedia of Haunted Indiana, which is about two inches thick. It was very cool, but... I, from the same person, from Heather, got a map that you can scratch off every location that you've been, and it's really cool looking, so I need to get a frame because I'm going to make it look awesome in my office. And then Debbie and Lori brought us these really cool bracelets that are all sparkly, and I got an orange one, and Denise got a black one for Halloween. Yes, and I was wearing mine all weekend after I got it the whole day. It was very beautiful. And then Rose's son drew us some pictures. I got one featuring villains. And I got Mickey and Minnie, and it's super cute. And that one's going to definitely get framed as well. So thank you to everybody who brought us that stuff. We really appreciate it. Yes, we do. We want to welcome to the Spooktacular crew, Della. Hi, Della. Carrie. Hey, Carrie. Quinn with one N. Hello, Quinn with one N. Grace. Hey, Grace. Becky. Hey, Becky. Bujan, and I hope I said that right. Hi, Bujan. Tiffany with an I at the end. Hi, Tiffany with an I at the end. Mary. Hey, Mary. Joanne. Hi, Joanne. Renee. Hello, Renee. Paul. Hi, Paul. Anne-Marie. Hello, Anne-Marie. Greg. Hey, Greg. Andy with an I at the end. And Andy with an I at the end. Jillian. Hey, Jillian. And Deanne, who is Heather's friend. And hello, Deanne, who is Heather's friend. And now, this moment, Naughty. The Victorian era was fraught with dangers, as we have covered before when talking about Victorian dresses that caught fire easily. Isabella Beaton wrote a book titled Mrs. Beaton's Household Management in 1861, which doled out advice to the ladies on how to run a proper household from cooking to child rearing. One bit of advice in that book, combined with the modern-day marvel of the time, led to the deaths of hundreds of babies. Breastfeeding in the Victorian era was challenging because of those dangerous Victorian dresses just mentioned. Even nursing corsets did not help alleviate the challenge. So the banjo bottle was created with a nifty rubber tube and nipple. Now baby could feed him or herself with ease. This freed up mother to tend to the hiring of staff and such. Many of these bottles carried names like Mummy's Darling. Mrs. Beaton encouraged the use of these bottles and even advised moms that they only needed to wash the nipple and tubing occasionally. And even when the mothers did clean the bottle apparatus, it was very difficult. As you already have probably surmised, these bottles were the perfect incubators for deadly bacteria. 
and the infrequent cleaning only added to the problem. Doctors soon condemned the bottles, but people continued to buy them. At that time, only two out of ten infants lived to their second birthday, and these bottles certainly helped add to that statistic. This earned the bottles the nickname Murder Bottles. The fact that parents would continue to use these bottles with a name like that and followed the advice of a woman who thought washing these things only needed to be done every couple of weeks certainly is odd. And now, This Month in History. In the month of June on the 26th in 1914, champion athlete Mildred Babe Didrikson was born in Port Arthur, Texas. Mildred got her nickname Babe from baseball legend Babe Ruth. She played a variety of sports and excelled at all of them, which was unheard of for a female in her day. She won two gold medals at the 1932 Olympics and set world records while earning those medals in the javelin throw and high hurdle. She switched to golf after that and won the 1946 U.S. Women's Amateur Tournament. In 1947, she won 17 straight golf championships, became the first American winner of the British Ladies Amateur Tournament. She turned pro and won the U.S. Women's Open in 1950 and 1954. Other sports she conquered were softball, baseball, swimming, figure skating, billiards, and she even played some football. The Associated Press named her Woman Athlete of the First Half of the 20th Century in 1950. And despite her athletic way of life and healthy living, cancer found its way to her and took her life in 1952. She was only 42 years old. The village of Tilty is in the county of Essex in England. The county is known for its medieval Gothic architecture using various stones, wood, and bricks in the construction of buildings that have thus endured for centuries. Some of these structures have not fared well, though, and one of these is Tilthy Abbey. All that really remains of this abbey are some crumbling stone walls in the field and a chapel outside the gates built for worshippers who were not monks. The abbey was built in the 12th century and was a religious and social center. Some may say that a religious location is a source for the supernatural, and it would seem that Tilthy Abbey remains such a source today, with rumors of strange creatures, headless monks wandering around, curses, and other strange occurrences. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of Tilthy Abbey and her village. The Abbey at Tilthy was established in 1153 by Maurice Fitzgeoffrey. He was the vassal of the Earl of Derby at the time, and thus the Earl helped him with the founding. Seven Cistercian monks came from Warden Abbey in Bedfordshire to reside at the Abbey, which initially started as a wooden makeshift dwelling. The monks spent their days clearing the land and establishing self-sufficient agriculture. They built several buildings in the Cistercian style, which included a refectory, cloisters, living quarters, and the main church. The church was large and measured over 170 feet long and 90 feet wide. 
It is believed that the dedication of the Abbey probably took place on September 22nd, known as St. Maurice's Feast Day. People were welcome to worship at the Abbey, but not in the church itself. A Capella Ante Portus was constructed. This basically was a smaller chapel outside the gates, and this particular one was dedicated to St. Thomas Becket. So they said, if you're not a monk, you don't get to go into the big church, Denise. I would have said that I'm going somewhere else to worship. The monks in the abbey were not above getting involved in politics, and they stood in opposition to King John, who was ruling in 1215. On Christmas Day of that year, the king sacked the abbey. Soldiers broke into the church and several chests and stole everything of value. The church was desecrated and several monks were killed. Two of their tombstones can be seen in the church on the north wall of the sanctuary. The church was rebuilt and consecrated in 1221. The power and wealth of the monastic community continued to grow with the acquirement of more land, and the church was enlarged. The monks began raising sheep and developed a wool trade that produced the finest white wool in the country. Political influence for the abbey continued under King Edward I, and the king summoned the abbot to one of his parliaments. The gate church was enlarged in the 14th century, right before the Black Death hit England in 1348. The plague stopped any further expansion of the church. Things would change drastically with the Reformation and when King Henry VIII came to power. Landowners were jealous of the wealth of the monasteries as well and they began to dissolve. Two abbots at Tilty were deposed and pensioned off between 1530 and 1535. King Henry VIII finally dissolved Tilty Abbey in 1535. The guesthouse was leased to the Marchioness of Dorset for her son, George Medley, at that time. There are discrepancies as to what happened to the buildings of the abbey. Some claim that all but the gate chapel were blown up by gunpowder, while others claim the monastic buildings were remodeled as private dwellings and then later became farm buildings. Today, there are only small sections of the stone wall left near the gate chapel. Further along a path near the church is the former site of the monk's water mill that was later remodeled into a Victorian mill that no longer works. The church is beautiful and a testament to its long history. The abbey features a large window on its east side that is an example of curvilinear 14th century tracery. The design is elaborate, incorporating five lancets leading to an intricate tracery wheel. The exterior walls are plastered in pale pink, and the church is topped with a Jejorian cupola atop a small bell chamber. The interior design features Norman influences with a font that has a 17th century cover painted in foliage patterns. The roof still features original beams dating back to the 12th century. There is a beautifully carved wooden chair at the entrance of the sanctuary. The figure of a woman praying and the words, My Lord and God, John Wesley, 1776, are carved into that chair. Unique items in the church are memorial brasses, and Diane stumbled across an article in a newspaper about brass rubbing when trying to find a news story about a skeleton found on the property. So we'll get into the skeleton in just a moment when we're talking about the hauntings. But because this skeleton was found, I thought that perhaps I could find a news article that would feature this. So I put Tilty Abbey in and I came up with this article that says elegant brasses provide basis for unique art. And I've heard of stone rubbing, but I'd never heard of brass rubbing. So I thought it'd be kind of interesting to share this because it had something to do with Tilty Abbey. This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. 
So there's this woman whose name is Sydney Dorn, and she's from Nampa, and she came over to England and had been living there for three years, and she decided to make the most of her time and enjoy every minute of her stay. So she and her husband, who was a captain in the Air Force, rented a seven-room, 500-year-old cottage near RAF Weathersfield, which is about 40 miles from London and began to enjoy the quaint villages of the countryside. They shopped for antiques, and it gradually began furnishing their home that they had there. So Mrs. Dorn started hearing people talking about these monumental brasses that were located in the various village churches and the unique art known as brass rubbing. I'd always been interested in art, she explained, so I decided to try my hand at brass rubbing. The brasses are exact effigies of people that lived during the 13th through the 17th century in England, she said, Usually they depicted people of title and wealth, but often religious leaders were portrayed. These brasses served as a sort of headstone during that period, and about 4,000 still exist in England. The flat pieces of brass are nailed to the floor or walls of the churches and cathedrals throughout England and Europe. They are quite valuable to anyone interested in the social history of the Middle Ages and Renaissance because shields, costumes, and arms are clearly detailed in the plates. She explained that the plates were cut to shape and let into the surface of a tomb, and the engraved figures were portrayed in their costumes of life. The brasses were usually cut before the person died. The brasses date from the reign of Edward I of England through the Last Crusade, Peasants' Revolt, War of Roses, the Reformation, Establishment of the Commonwealth, and the Restoration. With no experience and lots of enthusiasm, she obtained permission to practice on four small brasses in Tilty Abbey. Before you can do a rubbing, she pointed out, you must obtain permission from the vicar of the church. They usually require experience, but I was lucky enough to find one that allowed beginners to work. This was the beginning of a collection of 34 brass rubbings that range in size from 10 inches to 7 feet. That's a big brass. Upon her return to the United States, Mrs. Dorn held a showing of the rubbings in Amarillo, Texas, and has sold some of the collection for as high as $200. Denise, we need to go rub some brass. Absolutely. In order to do a brass rubbing, the brasses must be cleaned and then shined with nylon. The detail paper is placed over the brass and secured with masking tape. The outline is carefully rubbed until a clear and definite shape is visible. You must rub very lightly at first or you will tear the paper with the brass nails, she said. After a light imprint appears, you can begin to rub much harder for longer periods of time until you have the brass rubbing. I wonder if that's just the way they use to get their brass clean because you have to clean it, buff it up, and they're like, sure, you can do a rubbing. Now we don't have to clean the brass. You've got it, Denise. The vicars (laughs) are like, yeah, hey, you're a beginner. Sure. Go ahead. Polish the brass and rub rub some stuff on it. You got to polish it real nice and pretty first. Inscriptions on the brasses give a key to the history of the plate and its subject. You try to get as much information about them as possible. Often there is very little available. And then she just goes on to talk about all the ones that she has in her collection. But I thought it was really cool because I'd never heard of brass rubbing before. And I was just looking for Tilty Abbey. And it has these really cool brasses that I'm about to share with you. And to have it pop up in this article that's just talking about this woman making these brass rubbings. I thought that was pretty neat to share with everybody. Very cool. One of the memorial brasses is near the altar and features the wife of the Duke of Inverary, who was named Margaret. She died in 1590. The brass has her flanked by her three daughters, three sons, and three children who died in infancy, shown wrapped in swaddling clothes. Another brass has a knight in full armor standing with his wife. The third brass also has a knight, but this one has him resting his head on a helmet. The pulpit is made from a Georgian sounding board, which has a figure of a bird in flight painted on it. 
On the south side of the sanctuary, there is a three-seat sedilia and a piscina, all set beneath nicely carved niches with openwork tracery. The walls are decorated with medieval carvings and wall paintings, one of which is a repeating pattern of colored triangles. The pews are painted pale grayish green, and at the west end of the nave is an organ painted a darker green. The Abbey is the center of most of the supernatural activity in the village of Tilti, but there are several locations here that have paranormal lore and hauntings connected to them. There's a nearby village named Thaxted, and it was connected to Tilti by a coach road. This old road has reports of the disembodied sound of horses and coaches driving along. This is unnerving enough, but actually seeing the coach can be utterly terrifying, as legend claims that glimpsing the coach means that you will die soon. We're not sure if this is simply a death omen or a curse because the individual saw the coach. So not sure if, you know, which came first, the chicken or the egg. This reminds me, Denise, when we were on the Lincoln Ghost Walk that they said that occasionally there on the road you'd hear the sound of disembodied horses and coaches going by. It's funny because right when you were going through that part, that's what I was thinking of where they said all of a sudden people would turn because they were for sure that a carriage was coming up behind them and then nothing there. A cottage in the village was built sometime in the early 1600s, and it is known as Deer's Leap Cottage. A man named Malcolm Pierce moved into it, and that is when reports of a ghostly presence started. The lights in the cottage have a habit of turning off, and whenever Malcolm gets up to check why the light has gone out, it will pop back on. Several electricians have checked the wiring over the years, but nothing has ever been found wrong with the wiring of the house. Objects move around, and pictures come off the walls. Malcolm said these occurrences can be startling, but he has never felt threatened by the presence that he has come to believe is an old woman. He has never seen the spirit, but one day a cleaning woman turned in her notice, and when he asked why she was leaving, she informed him that she had seen a gray-haired woman in period clothing smiling at her, who then abruptly vanished. The old mill that the monks had built were modified into apartments at one time, Tunnels used to branch out from Tilty Abbey to various locations to serve as protection during the time that the monks were persecuted. One of those tunnels led to the mill, which was accessed through the cellar door. Today, it is bricked up, but when it was still open, a man named Bob Hitchings went out to the mill with a young woman who lived there. She complained to him that the cellar door would not stay locked. Bob figured that there had to be some kind of explanation, probably that she was not locking the door securely. He locked the door and put the keys on a hook. In the morning, he was shocked to find that the door was open and the keys were where he had left them. There was no one else at the mill at the time. The woman's father had a terrifying experience that has been shared by several people in the area. This is a story of a bizarre creature. The father had been walking up the lane from the village to the mill when he noticed a dark figure had been following along with him, darting in and out of the bushes. He immediately thought that the figure belonged to a cat, but when he saw it again, it was too large to be a cat. He figured it was a badger, or even more likely, a fox. The shadowy creature continued to follow behind him, as if stalking him, and as it did, it grew in size. The father burst through the kitchen door in a state of terror and told Hitchings, who was visiting, what he had seen. The man was truly scared, and this was reflected even more noticeably when his hair turned completely white within a few weeks of the encounter. Another man witnessed the same creature in 1994 when he was driving to Dutton Hill by way of Tilty Road. He told his wife that a large creature had passed before his headlights. He estimated that it was around six feet tall and seemed to lope like an animal. But what chilled him to the bone was that the headlights did not illuminate the shadow. That's pretty weird, Denise. That That is very weird. The headlights just disappear into the darkness. 
He described it as it was there, but it wasn't there. I could see it, but the headlights did not shine on it. Villagers have come to call the creature the black cat. What makes the connection to Hitchens' story about the father whose hair turned white weird is that this story occurred 25 years after that story. So you're talking about if this is some kind of, I don't know, cryptid, if you would call a black cat a cryptid. Obviously, it's if it's a black cat, it's huge, but we're talking 25 years. So it's something that can live for a long time unless there's more than one. A dark figure was seen in February of 1996 by a local historian who was taking a walk through the Abbey Fields with a friend. They were surveying the fields to assess if they were suitable for reenactment of Civil War battles. The figure appeared in the tree lining wearing dark clothing. It was dusk, so the figure was hard to make out. It was approaching them, and the man looked away for a moment, but when it was near to them and passing by, he glanced at the figure only to see that there was no one there. He startled, and his companion asked what was the matter. The man was confused because his friend had no concern that a dark figure had been near them. When he asked his friend if he had seen the figure passing them, his friend responded, Nobody's passed us. What are you talking about? There seems to be a curse connected to the property. Reverend G.E. Simmons wrote Tilty Parish and Abbey in 1889, and an excerpt from that work reads, It was said that if anyone ordered some of the remaining buildings to be demolished, he would die within a month. A steward did so in the early part of the 19th century, and he died within a month. His successor of the same family some years after ordered a further removal, and he died within a month. And now only a part, apparently, of the cloister is left. So was there really a curse for those who destroyed the abbey? The Three Horseshoes is a pub in the village that has had its share of paranormal activity. Gil Connell is the landlady, and she has reported that in 1993, when she was moving in, something odd happened. She said, on August 4th, 1993, the day we moved in, I put the kettle on to make tea for Derek, myself, and the two moving men. I then went to watch the men unloading the last things from the lorry. After a while, I remembered the tea. Going back into the kitchen, I found that the kettle was hot from having boiled, but it was switched off at the wall and the kettle flex had been coiled up and laid on the work surface. Nobody had entered the house while I was outside. The mother-in-law also had experiences with hearing people coming in the door and there would be nobody there, and she once caught a mince pie sliding itself off the table. An employee reportedly had seen smoke rings being formed by an invisible smoker, and a glass has moved itself across the bar and smashed onto the floor. Someone sitting at the bar once felt a strong poke while sitting on a stool at the bar. Across from the pub is a large two-door-style house that belonged to the Willoughby family. The family has reported objects moving in the house on their own, disembodied footsteps, and a feeling of being watched. Loud knocks on the back door have been heard when nobody is at the door. The most terrifying incidents at the home revolve around a hooded figure. A previous owner had been a Belgian heiress. One evening, she went out to retrieve some dustbins that strong winds had blown around. As she walked past an outbuilding, she was startled by a hooded figure. It raised its hand. She stopped in her tracks and the outbuilding collapsed. She was left unhurt and saw the figure as a protector, although some might claim it caused the collapse. Gil Willoughby's mother was once awakened by a hooded figure that beckoned for her to follow it. When it reached the bedroom door, it disappeared. Gil's son awoke one night with the pressure on his chest as if someone were pressing down on him. He watched as a gray mist gathered above him. He shouted and kicked his feet and the mist disappeared. 
A woman was driving in a storm on her way to Dutton Hill along B-184 near Tilty when she was startled by a dark figure sitting in her back seat. She looked down, and when she looked back at the mirror, she saw that he was no longer there. Then she saw that he was not in the car anymore, but now was on a motorbike that was right beside the car. I've never heard anything like that, Denise. It disappears from the back seat, and then it's on a motorcycle next to her. I know, that's that's super strange. For a while, he rode along next to her, and then he moved so that he would be in front of her car, and he forced her to slow down, and finally he put on his brakes, and she had to stop. Then she watched as he continued driving along, and he turned off and just started going across the field, so he was no longer on the road, and then he just disappeared. So she's sitting there in her car for a little bit, quite shaken, don't blame her. And then she's like, gosh, I wonder what that was all about and why it made me stop. So she started her car again and started down along the road. And lo and behold, when she came around to bend, there was this huge tree that had fallen down because of the storm. And it was right across the road. And she had no doubt that that apparition had saved her life because if she had been continuing to go along, she's sure that she would have been hit by that tree. And what's really interesting about that is there's this graveyard at the Thaxted Church and a man named John Marijon was buried there and he was killed in a motorbike accident on that stretch of B-184. So was this his ghost coming to warn her of danger? It would appear so. Though there have been no reports that have been made about this particular ghost in many years... One of the most well-known stories of Tilty Abbey is the story of the Headless Monk. And this dates back all the way to 1215, when supposedly a monk was beheaded by men who were under King John. When you go around and ask people in the village if they've seen the Headless Monk, you can't find anybody who has, but they all know the story about it. And supposedly this headless monk is reported to walk the lane along the river between Dutton Hill and Great Easton, and usually it's in the middle of the night. What makes this story even more interesting is that skeleton that I mentioned to you guys earlier. They were doing an archaeological dig out there on the site of the abbey back in 1942. During that dig, they found two stone monks' tombs. And when their remains were examined before they were reinterred, it was found that one of the skeletons lacked a head, Denise. Oh, wow. So we have a skeleton to go with the headless monk ghost. So pretty interesting stuff. So that's the most well-known ghost out there. There seems to be some strange things happening in the village of Tilty. Is the village haunted? Is Tilty Abbey haunted? That is for you to decide. And I want to thank Bob not only for suggesting this location, but also for tracking down those pamphlets and then scanning them and emailing them to me. Because when it came to the hauntings, we had a whole lot of information there we just shared with you. I couldn't find any of that except for the Headless Monk online. I was like, oh my gosh, I have one line of haunting for this. There's not much going on there. And then I looked at the pamphlets that Bob had sent me and I went, oh my gosh, there's a lot of activity going on here. So thank you so much for doing that, Bob. It greatly helped us in producing this episode. Our next episode, we're going to go to one of our favorite cities, Denise, Savannah. And we're going to check out a location that was suggested to us by Sarah Kavensky, and that is the 1790 Inn. And she suggested this, I don't know, probably a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago. So we're finally getting to it, Sarah. We'd love to have you guys check out our website at historyghostbump.com. And Denise, if people want to email us or send us some feedback, where can they do that? They can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. 
We wanted to share that we had gotten an email from our friend April over in the Philippines, Denise. She finally got a chance to listen to the Filipino folklore episode that we did with her, and she was really happy with how it turned out. But she wanted to let us know that two days later, she got her letter for her naturalization test, and she passed the test, so she is now a brand new United States citizen. Congratulations. That's fantastic news. Yes. Congratulations, April. That is amazing. So very, very cool. And then we got a really sweet email from Victoria, and we just wanted to thank you for sending us that about your mom who you'd lost and uh, some of the details about her. We greatly appreciated that. And she mentioned that she was listening to the Port Arthur episode, and then she listened to Case File and heard on their Case 45 that they talked about the shooting that happened there at Port Arthur. So uh, both of our shows go really well together there. And I hope you guys enjoyed that little bumper we had at the beginning from the Not Alone podcast. We talked about them on the last episode. So hopefully you're checking out their podcast. It's really great. And then we got this experience sent to us from Athanasia. And she said, so I've had plenty of encounters over my life that are unusual, even paranormal. But the reason I'm writing today is because I was hoping you or some of the crew can shed some light on something I saw yesterday on my way home from work. I was on the lower level of a double-decker bus. Yes, we have those in Canada. Looking out the window to my right. Traffic at this time is stop and start. We call it the crawl. So I usually pass the time by drawing or catching up on emails while listening to music or in this case, your podcast. About 0.5 kilometers from downtown, I was looking out the window and I see what looks like a bird. It was brownish in color and I could see the wings extended and the tail. But it wasn't behaving like a normal bird would and it seemed a bit larger. Initially, I thought maybe it was a hawk or falcon, but the way it was moving was really strange. It was not flapping its wings in any way, but merely gliding along at a slow but steady pace. Even stranger was that it was not face down like a bird would normally glide. It wasn't buckling in the wind, moving up and down like you see birds do. It was nearly straight up and down, his body nearly perpendicular, yet he was moving forward. I've never heard of a bird doing that before. No, that's very weird. I've never seen a bird fly in this manner, nor catch on the wind like this. I don't even know if that's possible. Since the wings were open, if the wind was blowing towards it, it should have blown it in the opposite direction. If the wind was blowing from behind, the wings would be flapping or at least in a different position. If it were on an updraft, it should have been moving upwards on the wind, but it wasn't. Its feet weren't outstretched like it was trying to grab prey or anything either. The sighting lasted 5 to 10 seconds. As we drove by, I could see the back side of it and it was a darker brown color and it was still moving in the same manner. After seeing this, I was perplexed. I couldn't see how a bird could glide in this way. I thought perhaps it was a balloon or a kite. It wasn't too windy, but there was a wind of 5 to 10 kilometers or so. So technically, maybe a kite could get some height. However, I didn't see any strings at all, and the area it was over was an office industrial area, so there isn't really any room for someone to run in a field. I know that some car lots have balloons, but this was quite high up, and again, there was no string that I could see. It was a sunny day and I didn't see any reflection like you'd see if it were foil or plastic. It also had solid form. As we went past and my point of view changed, I could see that it had a shape. It wasn't 2D like a kite. I thought maybe a drone of some kind exists but couldn't find anything. I also didn't see any propellers or mechanics. If you have any idea of what it is I saw or if other people have seen something like this, I'd be interested in a follow-up. And then she sent it over to the guys at the Expanded Perspectives podcast to see if any of them have had an encounter like that. And then she had a a little bit of a follow-up and she said, I told my mom about it today. She was in town and was leaving town about 15 minutes behind me driving with a friend. About 0.5 kilometers forward from where I saw the bird, she saw a glowing orb in the sky. 
I asked her about it and recorded it. She said it was quite high up and it was not reflecting light, but emitting light. She saw it. And when she said for her friend to look, it was gone. Super odd that she saw something close to where I saw something and only 15 minutes behind me. What's interesting about the fact that she had this follow up with her mom is that I was thinking in the back of my mind UFO Mm -hmm. because I I'm a bird watcher. I've never seen any bird ever do anything like that and have a hard time figuring out exactly what the distances were. But I don't know. Sounds to me if it's some kind of glowing, reflecting light, maybe possibly it was some kind of unidentified flying object of some sort. Now, again, there are so many different kinds of drones out there. Maybe it was a drone of some sort. We've also seen people put things on drones, like when they try to scare people with a ghost or monster in the sky, they'll put that on a drone. With technology, it's getting harder and harder to think what might be paranormal, what might be a hoax. Exactly. So maybe it was something that was put on a drone so you couldn't see all of the elements that make up a drone. Who knows? But uh, yeah, that's very strange. We have a few iTunes reviews to share with you. Our first review is from Victoria0310. Interesting five stars. The podcast is very attention grabbing with the oddity and on this day segments. Hosts seem warm and are easy to connect to. I'm only on episode four, but I'm hooked. Thank you for that, Victoria. All American man. Good podcast. Give it a try. Five stars. These ladies are great. The back and forth between them is good. What turned me off from downloading this for a while was the backlog of over 200 episodes. I kept thinking I'll never catch up. I've been binging and I'm almost there. I've seen reviews and heard Diane read reviews where people are complaining about the show. I don't get why people are complaining about a free show. Don't like it. Delete the show. My formula is to download a show, start with show number one and work my way up to the current. After 10 or 15 shows, if I still don't like it, I delete it. I give the show a chance because some shows are shaky at first and improve with time. That would be us for sure. I like that there are no commercials. The mix of history and hauntings is great. They tell you about haunted places you can, in most cases, visit. I like the fact that at the end, whether or not a place truly is haunted is for you to decide. Well, thank you, All-American Man. Appreciate that. And Dr. Topogon Mantis, five stars. Love the interviews. Segments are always fun as well. Keep it up. Well, thank you so much for that. I want to thank you all for joining us for this episode. I have been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. We'd like to welcome new executive producers, Gavin Regalia, Jenna Lena, Jennifer Larson, Adam Smith, Popcorn and Pod People podcast. And thanks to Debbie Seals for your one-time donation. Be sociable. Drop the chain rattling, neck biting, and shape shifting, and join us on Facebook and Twitter at History Goes Bump. Like the page and follow us. <laughs> <laughs>